I want to teach you this morning uh, a message on what I have learned from the poor. What I've learned from the poor. I've spent most of my ministry life uh, working and living among the poor, and I have found, uh, I have learned from their values. They have certain things that we don't have. Their lifestyle is one where they live close to the elements. Uh, their lives are often, uh, often very precarious, uh, where they can easily fall victim to disease and sickness and, and bad weather and, and, uh, calamities that disrupt their life in a way that's far more, uh, more life-threatening than, than oftentimes we may face. And, uh, so I've learned a lot from them in their in the way that they live, in their exposure to the elements. They often live in the jungles or live in the forest or live in, the, in areas that are still a little bit wild and untamed. Um, I had an opportunity once to take a missionary friend of mine to uh, Nigeria. It was his first time there, and we traveled by boat. I lived in Nigeria four years, and we traveled into the Niger River Delta and visited a village where they had no running water, no electricity, and where the people lived in uh, mud houses with grass roofs. Uh, they had never seen white people before. And so when we walked into the village, they rubbed my hand and looked at it to see if the white would come off. And the children thought I was a witch doctor. So I took advantage of that, you know. And I really shouldn't have done that, but, you know. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> and uh, so we, you know, we visited this village and lived the village life for about a week there. Uh, we learned a lot of things, you know, about the village life. For one thing, there's always a lot of mosquitoes in the village. So all night long is, you know, because there's no screens or no, uh, no uh, mosquito spray or anything like that. Uh, second thing, there's always a lot of chickens and always roosters. And roosters, as you know, don't get up with the sun like normal people do. They get up with the birds, and the birds wake up at about 4 o'clock. And roosters decide at 4 o'clock in the morning that everybody in the house needs to get up. And so it's, er, 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 and then tea, someone makes tea, and the house fills with smoke, and, and you're up for a couple of hours before the sunrise. And the third thing we found was oftentimes there are a lot of rats that come into the home. And so they showed us our bed that night, and I noticed rat droppings on the bed sheet. And so I brushed them off real quick before my friend could see them, and he said, what's that? I said, oh, nothing, it's okay. He said, was that rat droppings? I said, yes, but don't worry, you'll be okay as long as you don't sleep on your back. What happens is they climb up onto the rafters, you know, above you, so you kind of get it. <laughs> so, you know... I know it's bad, but it's that's life. What I didn't tell him was oftentimes the snakes will come up into the rafters going after the rats, and occasionally a snake will fall on your bed. But that brother was informed on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> How many of you would like to sign up for a mission trip with me yeah, one, two, three. There's three brave folk here. But from that life, I've learned about the poor. And I want to share with you out of the Scriptures how Jesus taught about the poor, how He valued their, the poor, how He honored the, 
the characteristics of their lives and how he even used the poor as an example to us of how we should live and how we should walk in our faith. Now, the first verse I want to share with you is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Matthew 5 and verse 3. And this passage says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In other words, they have the possession of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we all know that there is no blessing in poverty. You're not blessed because you're poor. A poor person is not blessed. But what this verse is saying, and King James says, uh, God, the, I can't remember how the King James says it. How, someone help me. How does the King James say this verse? The poor in spirit. Thank you, Pastor. God blesses the poor in spirit. So it is not the poor that are blessed. It is the poor in spirit. And here in the New Living Translation, it helps make it more clear for us in our modern vernacular. But it says, God blesses those who are poor and who realize their need for Him. So the blessing is not in poverty. The blessing is realizing that you need God, that you're in need of Him. How many of you see the difference? So a person may be rich or poor, but a poor person is more likely to realize his need for Him. Are you following me? And for those who are not poor, they have to work a little harder to make sure that their life is one that is in desperate need for God. It's like that little boy who had no other choice but prayer and healing. And many times this is the only choice the poor have. Now, I have been both poor and I have been not, I've not, never been wealthy, but I've had my needs met. And I have, I remember what it was like when I had nothing. When I came to the Lord, gave my heart to serve God, my wife and I determined that we were going to live for Him and serve Him overseas. Uh, I was working at a tiny little church in South Mississippi. And, uh, I was there as their uh, assistant pastor, but that meant, meant that I vacuumed the carpets and kept the bathrooms clean and did everything else, ran the sound, you know, everything. Uh, but I went on my first mission trip out of that church uh, to visit a work that we were helping in South Mexico under a Cuban missionary. And when I visited him, I preached for my first time on the foreign field through a Spanish translator. Uh, spent about a week down there with him. And at the end of that week, uh, I had about $150 in cash remaining. It was my personal savings. And so I gave every bit of it to that Cuban missionary, and I said, I just want to bless you and give you to give toward your ministry. Now, I finished preaching there. It was in Cosamalawapan, Veracruz. And I finished the message, and uh, we went out to a little cafe and had tacos, and then I got on a bus that night at midnight, or was to get on the bus. He said, Brother, do you have any money remaining? I said, No, the Lord will provide. I was a little bit over-spiritual in those days. Uh, <laughs> he said, you're crazy. He said, you're going to get on a bus and travel all the way across Mexico to Mexico City and then tomorrow get on a plane. I said, I got my bus ticket, got my plane ticket. I'm good. He said, brother, at least take $5. And he gave me $5 back. I said, well, okay, but I know Jesus will provide, you know. So I get on the bus all night long. The bus drops me at the edge of Mexico City the next morning. I thought I was going to the airport. 
So I got, you know, didn't have any pesos to get a taxi or to get a bus. And so I looked and I could see where the planes were landing on the other side of the city. And I start walking across Mexico City at six o'clock in the morning, dragging my little suitcase. Do you know how big Mexico City is? It's like walking to New Orleans. I mean, it's insane. And I'm walking across this city and about 10 o'clock in the morning, I sat down on a little park bench. And uh, I was tired and a little bit worried and wondering if Jesus was going to help me or not. <laughs> and this man came and sat next to me, a, a blonde-headed, blue-eyed, light-skinned uh, European. And he spoke to me in French. The guy was at least 75 years of age. And he asked me if I spoke English, I mean, if I spoke French. And I said, well, no. Do you speak English? No. Do you speak Spanish? No. So here's this French guy sitting next to me on the bench, and through sign language, I helped him understand that I had no pesos and that I needed to get to the airport to catch a plane, all through sign language, you know. So he took me by the hand, he walked me to a bus stop, and he waited until a bus came that said, Aereo Preto, on the, on the front of the bus. The bus stops, and he gives the driver one peso, which was about five U.S. cents at that time which was my bus fare to make it to the airport. And as the bus pulls away, I look back, and there's this little man on the curb waving at me who speaks only French. And I thought to myself, I think I may have just seen an angel. It was so unusual. It was so weird. It was so coincidental. It was so bizarre that I could not think of any other explanation. And to this day, I don't know whether he was or wasn't. I only know that was the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. And I know this, that that little one peso, five cent miracle was the greatest financial miracle I've ever had in my life. You know, it's not how much, it's how much you need. It's not how extraordinary, it's how much the need is. And that time, I needed five cents really bad. You know, I thought, what an idiot. You know, I could have asked him so many things like, how's the food up there? And and uh, what's it like? And am I going to make it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I missed my chance. But that was a real thing for me that I remember to this day. And I remember it because it was a miracle that came out of my poverty. How many of you understand this? That was what I call reckless faith. What I did was reckless, maybe a little bit foolish, maybe, you know, a little bit presumptuous. Maybe I was assuming too many things, but you know what? I was sincere. I may have been ill-informed and ignorant and young and all those things, but one thing I was, was I was sincere in my faith. I was poor in spirit, and I was willing to give everything went to the airport, walked to the American Airlines desk, and there was a sign on the desk that said, Airport Departure Tax, $5. Hello, <laughs> you know. How many of you know that God blesses those who are poor? The second thing I've learned uh, from the poor is what I call desperate faith. Desperate faith. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Now, I've never heard a preaching or a teaching about mourning, how that mourning will lead us into comfort and to God's blessing. Have you ever heard a message on that? I mean, how often? I've never taught on mourning. But I've noticed that as I've traveled around the world, in the developing world, I've seen it in Central America, South America, I've seen it in Russia, in, in Asia, in Africa. Whenever you're among the truly poor of the world, and especially those who are illiterate, or who many of them are illiterate, you find this form of prayer where they're mourning and weeping in their prayers. And I've never liked it. I've preached against it my entire life. I've said, you know, you need to have faith when you pray. You should pray in the gifts and in the fruit of the Spirit. Have joy and peace and a conquering attitude. And You need to pray like you're winning, like you're on the winning team, like Alabama last night against Georgia. You know, sorry. It was a good game. <laughs> But you need to pray like you're on the winning team. And uh, then I say, let's pray. And they'd all go to their same mournful prayers. Oh, Jesus. This kind of desperation for God that comes, that emerges out of the poor. And so that's always perplexed me. Until a few uh, years ago, I was with my leaders in Nepal, and we were in a little village, and we had gathered the leaders around from the churches we have in that area, and I had about 30, 40 guys there. They're, they're rice farmers, and they were all on the floor kneeling in prayer, and I was about to speak to them. Uh, mud floor, mud building, grass roof, and they're all praying, and they're weeping in, in their prayers. And I'm standing in the back, you know, and I've kind of just... Uh, Resolve myself to this over the years, and I'm waiting for this, them to finish praying so I can teach. And I'm looking at their muddy farmer's feet, and I'm looking around the building, and everything in that building they have made with their own hands from think materials they found within a day's journey of where that building was. The timbers they cut from the woods, from the forest, with uh, hand, hand-forged axes and machetes. Uh, the, the, the mud from the houses, they dug out of the ground right around the, uh, the little building there. The thatch, they, they took from the forest and they cut it and wove it together with sisal and everything that was there. There was not one single nail, not one single, uh, implement of, of iron. Everything was made with their hands. And I begin to think how they live and how connected they are to the earth. They were literally kneeling on a dirt floor. And the mud still between their toes because they'd worked in the rice fields that day and now had come to be taught. And I'm watching these guys in their mournful prayers. And I thought of this verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. And I want to read this with you. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And as I watched those men pray, and as I thought about this verse, and I thought about the fact that the Bible says here that even the earth is groaning. Creation itself is mourning and groaning and desiring 
the redemption of, of mankind and of creation. Creation is weary of the corruption that has been brought upon the world, and the world itself is longing to be redeemed from corruption. The Bible says there's a voice that comes out of the earth moaning to be restored to the dignity of creation. That's what it says. And I thought to myself, maybe, maybe these poor farmers who live on the edge of poverty, who live simple lives, maybe they can hear a voice that I cannot hear in my self-absorbed, polished, refined, educated world. Maybe they have something I don't have. And something changed in that moment about in my attitude. How many of you know sometimes we need a little attitude adjustment? Sometimes we can be so proud of ourselves and who we are as Americans and as Westerners and, and God bless America and all that, but sometimes we become too proud of who we are. And when we become that, when we begin to rest in our own strength, we miss the voice that others maybe can hear. And something changed in me, and I thought to myself, I want to learn from these guys. I want to have the same kind of desperate faith that they have. I want to learn. I remember saying that as clear as if I'm standing here. We had in that area, we have a woman. Some of our pastors are women. They do a good job, sometimes better than the men. You know, sorry, but brothers, but these, these, they can pull it off. And so one of our women pastors, she has a water buffalo that is her livelihood. And so she called her overseeing pastor. His name is, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, but she called him and said, Pastor, I need you to pray. His name is Mohan. I need you to pray for my water buffalo. You need to come to my house. She said, he said, it's a two-hour journey by motorcycle, and it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm not coming. She would not let him off the phone. She's speaking on a mobile phone. She lives with no electricity, has a solar charger. Go figure that. But uh, at any rate, uh, she would not give up. So he gets on his bike, goes two hours to her home. He was angry, and he walked through her house to the back where the where the water buffalo was lying, and he said, in Jesus' name, be healed. He turned around and went back home. Well, the, a few months later, I was in her home, and she served me milk tea. And it was the best milk tea I've ever had. It was rich and strong and sweet. And, and I said, Sister, I don't think I've ever had milk tea any better than this. I said, what's your secret? She said, Pastor, first of all, when I milk the buffalo, and it was water buffalo milk, she said, I don't milk it into a container. I milk it directly into the teapot. And from the teapot, I put, put it on the fire. She said, it doesn't get any fresher than that. And she said, secondly, I make strong tea. And thirdly, this is milk from a miracle buffalo. And I said, well, tell me the story. And she told me that story with Pastor Moan sitting right next to me, hanging his head in shame. And she said... After a few days, the water buffalo stood on its feet. In fact, the next day, the water buffalo was standing. Within about a week and a half, it was giving just a little bit of milk. By the end of the month, it was giving double the milk it had ever given with twice the fat content. She said, Pastor, the reason it's so good is it's got double the fat. 
Now, the lesson to this is even when your pastor's angry with you, it's okay. Just get him to pray. (laughs) Pastors do get angry sometimes. But it's not his faith that will heal your water buffalo. It's your faith. It's your need. It's your desperation. And when you're desperate, how many of you know the Lord is there? In fact, desperation is the thing that he just cannot ignore. Desperate faith. The third thing I've learned from the poor is respectful faith. Respectful faith. Now, you may not think that respect is a value that is attached to faith. But in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. How many of you know that respect cannot be given without humility? Respect issues out of humility. The reason we have lost the value of respect in our own culture is because we have lost our humility. How many of you agree with that? Do you agree that we have lost our sense of respect for one another? In the way that we live, in the way that we argue, in the way that we conflict? We know we have. Why have we lost it? Because we've lost our humility. Humility is a value that is directly related to faith. I have seen faith among the poor that I've never seen in the developing world. How many of you have heard of miracles in Mexico or South America or Africa and thought to yourself, why doesn't God do those miracles here? You ever ask yourself that question? Yeah, I ask myself all the time. It does, why them and not us? We need miracles. We have needs. We, It's because we're not desperate, we're not reckless, and we've lost the values of respect. Hello? (laughs) Is this making sense to you? You know, when I go to Pakistan and I speak in the churches there, when I walk to the churches, um, they will line the pathway with young, uh, with young people. And they have these little baskets full of rose petals. And so when I walk down the pathway, they throw rose petals. When I'm, I'm like, like, hallelujah. <laughs> it's, it's really, I feel really strange about it. I don't like it. I'm just hoping no one's taking a video, you know, to just put on Facebook because it looks really, you know, it doesn't look good. Um, or in Nepal, some, the young people will come to me and uh, every, sometimes as I've aged, I've noticed they give more respect to me. Sometimes they'll come and they'll kneel down and they'll touch my feet as a sign of respect. Or they'll come and they'll they'll bow their heads and they want me to bless them. They do the same thing in Pakistan. They just want me to touch them on the head and just bless them. As I have aged, I have become less relevant in America. I have become more relevant in Asia. The Asians respect me because I'm a grandfather. But in my own country, respect is decreasing because I'm old and I don't know how, I don't understand social media and I don't Snapchat and know the filters and, and I'm no more, I'm no longer relevant. You know, this is true. You'll figure it out too when you get old. It's not a pleasant experience. Respect. 
Respect and faith go hand in hand with humility. How many of you got me so far? All right. The fourth thing I've learned is that there's a certain faith that comes out of persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We don't have much persecution in America. We're beginning to experience some, but not anything like what is often experienced in the developing world. When I was in, oh, I forgot to show you my video. Is it too late? Can I, I want, I'm going to talk about my, my Nepali friends. I want to show you a video of my Nepali churches there. That's a conference back in October. <laughs> they are so much fun and so full of the Lord. And there's about 12,000 people there. Uh, that had gathered from all the churches. So these are the guys that I'm talking, have been telling you about. And so, uh, as we were, as we were there for that conference, I had about six of my pastors come from India. Uh, they had gone across the border to preach to the Nepalis who live on the other side. And, uh, they were telling me how when they were in India, some high caste men had stopped them and forced them in front of a whole village full of people to kneel down uh, and kiss their feet. Then they spit on the ground and they forced them to lick up the spittle. And they were telling me this story and I was looking down at the ground while they were telling me and I got so angry. Uh, I wanted to go pick a fight with somebody. Uh, I wanted to go across the border, you know, and we say in Mississippi, clean that feller's plow. <laughs> <laughs> I was angry, and I thought to myself, how humiliating for these men, grown men, to come and tell me how they were humiliated. I thought to myself, I would never tell anyone if this, if this were me. If I had been forced to do that, I wouldn't tell anybody how I had humiliated myself, and I was angry. And I looked up at those six men's faces, and every one of them was smiling. And the one who was talking, when I met his eyes, his eyes were like sparkling with joy. And he could hardly keep himself from laughing. And he said, Pastor, we are so thankful that the Lord found us worthy to suffer for his name. I thought, man, you know, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> I felt such conviction. Because I was angry and because of my pride. There is a faith that comes out of persecution that's real. And it's as real as we're standing here. Just as that brother was filled with joy and I was filled with anger, it's because I had never experienced what he's experienced. I have learned to respect and to honor the poor. They have given more to me than I've ever given to them. I thought I would go out and save the world, and I have changed the world in many ways, in all humility. <laughs> no, really, I've, I've made a difference. But you know what? What the poor have given back to me is of far more value than anything I've given to them. 
I'm learning what it means to be desperate for Him, to be in need of Him, to be poor in spirit. The fifth thing I've learned is healing faith. Healing faith. There's a verse in James chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? I mean, it can't be more plain than that. God has uniquely chosen poor people to be rich in faith. That means that we need them as much as they need us. There is something they have that we don't have. And I can promise you this. At some time in your life, your faith is going to fail you. Your faith is going to be insufficient. The faith that you have and the, the knowledge you have and the experience that you have is not going to meet the need that you have in desperation. And when you're in that place of desperation, you're going to need someone else to help you with their faith. And sometimes that's found among the poor. Sometimes it's found among those who you least expect or least recognize or have least uh, value for. God has uniquely designed the church in such a way that we are interdependent upon one another. I've lived my entire life by faith. I've hardly ever been sick. I've hardly ever had to take medicine or go to the doctor, though I had no problems with that. But I've hardly ever found the need for that. I've lived healthy. I've exercised. I've eaten a good diet. I've taken care of myself all through the years. And that is now paying off for me in the energy levels and the stamina and the relevancy that I still have physically. But uh, about five years ago, I went into this season where I had abdominal pain. And it was, it would not go away. It persisted. It was beginning to affect my hormones and my hormone secretions. Everything was weird. I was, I was crying all the time. Now, I cried a while ago, but that was, that wasn't hormones. That was the spirit. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> but I was like, I'd be in a restaurant with Bev and I, I, someone would tell us a happy story and I'd start weeping and it wasn't just normal weeping. It was like, <laughs> And Beverly said, are you okay? You know, she was getting worried about me. I'd be watching some sappy movie on Hallmark or something, start crying. It's like, I was so embarrassed about it because I've always been strong. I've never been that kind of person. So finally, I go to a doctor and a series of tests. And long story short, they found spots on my pancreas, precancerous cells. So he brings me in there and he has this end of life discussion with me. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? You got my, I literally said, you got my charts mixed up with somebody else. He said, Mr. Zachary, he said, I have your chart here. And he said, this is troubling me as well because I'm about your age and you're far more he healthy than I am. And I'm like looking at myself here. And I said, shut up, man. What, what are you talking about? And so I remember going out to my car and sitting in the car and thinking about what just happened. And I'm ashamed to say this, but when I sat in the car, I didn't say, I'm going to conquer this in Jesus' name. I'm going to lick this thing. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I didn't say any of those things. I said, you know what? Said it out loud. I've had a good life. I've seen the world. I've done it all. I've seen it all. I'm okay with this. And I didn't fight. I just gave up. I said, okay. No. I, I just gave in to death in that moment. 
And I didn't ask anybody to pray for me. I didn't, I didn't get worried about it. I, Beverly didn't like what I was doing. She was very much against it. But she said, all right, you know. And we went, we just went along. So about a year later, I'm in Nepal preaching. Abdominal pain still persisting. And I'm speaking to my leaders there. We had a large group of our leaders, about 300. And at the end, I told them what had happened. And I asked them to pray for me. And all of our men came down. And in the front of that group were the 18 young men that we started our churches with there 13 years ago. When we started, they were 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. They were literally our pastors in the beginning. They came and they said, Pastor, we want to pray for you. And they stood around me in a semicircle. They were all barefooted and they, they began to pray. And I closed my eyes, had my head down like this. I opened my eyes after about five or ten minutes and I noticed between each one of their feet was a pool of tears that was forming. And they were literally praying and tears were just streaming from their eyes and forming pools. I watched those pools just expand on the floor all the way around me. And when I saw those tears, I felt something right there where my abdominal pain was centered on the right-hand side. It felt like a little warm candle flame, just a tiny little flame. I didn't, you know, I wasn't healed in that moment, but some little burning sensation I felt. And from that day, my health began to improve. Within a month, uh, my energy levels were returning. I was back into an exercise routine. Within another few months, I was, I had gained some weight. I had lost a lot of muscle mass. Within just a few months, I was getting my energy levels back. I was dropped off that, some of that extra weight. You know, some of it still carrying a little bit, but I began to see my health improving. Within a year, I was back to my normal, healthy, good-looking self. <laughs> so now, you know, I still have those spots, and they say, well, Mr. Zachary, we just can't really know what that is, really. They're still there, but they're, they're not growing or anything, so I guess you're okay. Just make sure you check it about every two or three years. So I really don't even know what happened. I don't know, you know, whether it was a false diagnosis and, uh, and just got through it or, but I, you know what I really believe? I think I got healed. That's what I really believe. <laughs> so I can't claim that I beat anything from my own faith. What I can say was there's a moment in my life when I would, my faith wasn't working and I had to go to some poor men some rice farmers, and I had to ask them to pray for me. And you know what? They had something that I didn't have. Faith for healing. How many of you learned something this morning? Yeah. Now I want to ask you to give me about four minutes here. I want to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to pray for just a few of you here. I'm not going to call you forward or make a big deal out of this. It's not a big deal. You know, miracles are not a big deal. They're part of life. They are real. They happen. They don't have to be conjured or worked up or they just happen. They're natural as, as drinking a glass of water. It's life. It's part of the life of the kingdom. There's nothing mysterious about them. They just happen when the Lord touches you. And if you say, Pastor Rick, I have identified with what you just said. 
You say, I've had a bad prognosis. My health is in bad, is in poor condition. I've been given a prognosis by a doctor who said, uh, this is serious. And you're in that situation this morning like I was. Or maybe you say, Pastor Rick, I'll be honest with you. My faith is not strong right now. And I, I've been even depressed a little bit. And I've been like you were. I, I kind of given up on some things. And, and I'm at that point where I just need someone to pray for me. All I want to do is know who you are. And I want to ask you, if that's you this morning, I want you to stand up right where you are so that I can pray for you. I'm just going to pray right here from the platform. If you can't stand, raise your hand so that I can see it. But let me know who you are right now. And as I pray, my prayer will be something like this. Lord, may what you gave to me from those poor, may the gift that you gave to me, may I be a reservoir of that gift, and may I be able to give it back to to these believers standing here. That will be my prayer. If you need that, want that, say, that's for me stand right now. Church, let's bow our heads and let's pray. In the name of Jesus, Father, I have preached your word and I know that your word is true. And I have told a story of your word and how that word has worked in my life. And I know that story is true. I know that you are true, Lord, and that you're real and that you do miracles among your people. I know that you love your people, that you care for them, and that when they walk in your values and when they walk in respect and honor and when they humble themselves, you too will give them the needs of their desperation. And Father, for every believer who's standing right now, may the gift that you gave to me, that you freely gave, that was given to me from the poor, who are rich in things that I don't have, may I be a vessel right now And as I pray over this congregation, may you impart that gift to those standing. And may the miracle they need in their life be imparted in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's thank God for that. Pastor Todd, thank you.